everybody. Welcome to LesPod. You are here, my friends, because you believe in the LGBT community and the importance of sharing our individual stories to help impact one another. Seriously, impact one another, okay? Uh, our goal with the show is to introduce you to people and ideas that are going to help you actually execute on your dreams in the midst of learning how to really believe in yourself. Today's guest is Associate Director of the Pride Center for FIU, Florida International University, Dr. Erica Friedman. Dr. Erica, Dr. Erica's vision is to empower students to take the lead in administrating Pride Center uh, campus events. Her goal is to evolve the culture at the FIU through education and advocacy to make it the most supportive university for the LGBT community in what, uh, Florida. Uh, she has formative training as a social justice agent and fit and fit career and trans communities. Her exploration on social norms around gender and queer studies focus on understanding the impact of, and tell me if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly, cisgendericism and heteracism and how gender and sexuality development can be resisted or changed. Dr. Yeah. Erica, skip over those if you want. <laughs> but it's cisgenderism and heterosexism. <laughs> okay, got it. Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Erica is a world traveler, volunteers for local nonprofits, is a scuba dive surfer, I'm, I'm sorry, scuba certified, and runs a travel blog called Deviated the, Deviating the Norm. Okay, I'm going to put the link right here. Uh, help me welcome Dr. Erica Jane Friedman to the show. <laughs> Woo! Thank, Thank you. you so much for being a part of this. Thank you. Welcome. So tell me a little bit about who uh, Dr. Erica Jane Friedman is. Uh, you know, I, I shared quite a bit about you. I'd like to hear from your own words, you know, um, how you grew up, how you decided to conquer and become someone so great to, you know, work it up by you. Uh, be some be be part of a leadership ability with the Pride Center. Um, share that with us. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. As a fairly new Miamian, <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate getting the chance to connect with people and share my story. So this is really cool, Alex. Um, so yes, as you said, um, I'm Dr. Erica Jane Friedman, but we can we can drop the fanciness and y'all can just call me Erica. I welcome all pronouns. Um, I experience my gender and my sexuality as fluid, which basically means I don't use any labels um, attached to it. Uh, happy to go in depth into that more if you'd like to know more. Um, I'm a consensually non-monogamous person in my relationships, and I'm just generally open and open to learning and evolving and growing as a person in general. Um, I can be like a silly nerd sometimes. I tend to laugh and joke around a lot when I'm comfortable with people. Um, but I originally come from New York. Um, I'm from like all over New York State. I lived kind of all over. I grew up upstate New York. Um, went to college at Binghamton University to get my psychology bachelor's degree, uh, which is out in the southern tier of New York. And then I went to graduate school at the City University of New York Graduate Center to get my social psychology PhD. So I lived in Astoria, Queens for like six years and New York City is like my home, my home base. 
Um, but I moved to Miami uh, about two summers ago and uh, I was in the position at the Pride Center for about eight months before COVID hit. <laughs> so barely scratched the surface of Miami and still, you know, just starting to get to know it. Um, but yeah, how did I become this person <laughs> now uh, and get into this role at FIU? Um, I think that it's it's probably mostly because of the result of really good mentors um, and also really bad mentors <laughs> because uh, I definitely was, yeah, I mean, I learned what not to do and what I didn't want to be and become from the bad ones, <laughs> um, but also, you know, really great mentors in my life opened doors for me and made me realize that what I, the privileges that I had, right, and the opportunities that I had and reflecting back on that made me realize that I really want to do that in the future for um, other people. Um, and I feel like the knowledge that I've gained through the education that I've had, um, you know, that's important information that other people, you know, need to know. And I was privileged enough to get it. So I'm, I feel like I'm here to share it. I love that. I love that. That's so beautiful and selfless, you know, and I think that um, it takes a lot of strength to share your story and, you know, be raw and open and honest about who you are, because I, when you do that, you're exposed, you know, and, um, but at the same time, you know, exposure could be so beautiful if handled with care and the right kind of perception. So I love that. I love that. Um, tell me about your childhood. What was it like for you growing up? You know, when did you come out? Um, tell me a little bit about that. You know, were your, you know, were your parents accepting? Were you, did, they, did they know when you were young? You know, like, uh, give me a little insight. Yeah, so, I mean, I was, I was, raised as a, you know, as a girl. So I, you know, had all the, the typical kind of, I guess, heteronormative fantasies that a girl would have about marriage and things like that. But I also definitely had some other ideas that floated around that I recognized, but didn't really fully grasp until um, I remember I was laying on the bedroom floor of my childhood best friend's room. And she said something to me, this one were like probably 10 years old. She was like, I, had a crush on my previous best friend and would just start started telling a story. And I was just like, and her previous best friend was a girl, right? So I was like, huh, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and I also know that like from a very young age, I always thought about children and like, would I wanna have children one day? And for me, it was always like, I maybe wanna have my own child, but I definitely wanna adopt. I was always like, I want to adopt. And for some reason that was, a, a very like unusual, I guess, thing for a really young kid to think when we're, we're kind of taught that like the natural progression through life is that you're going to, you know, find a boy that you like and get married and then you're going to have babies with that boy. Right. And that, and, but I was sitting there like, nah, I'm going to like figure my own stuff out and not be dependent on a man. And I'm going to like adopt a kid. And like, that was my, <laughs> my story that I was telling myself about who I was going to become. Um, but I was still attracted to men. I dated men throughout high school. Um, I, I haven't stopped liking men. Um, 
to this day. And uh, it wasn't really until college that like, I always kind of looked to college as a place where I could really explore because I grew up in a very small town. Um, really, small? really small. Uh, it's <laughs> small as in, uh, if you look it up on Wikipedia, it's called a hamlet. <laughs> I graduated in a class of 92 kids in upstate New York. It's all farmland, it's like the total sticks, basically. Um, my parents were March on Washington, 1969, Woodstock going hippies. And so they were very liberal. Uh, they met in high school and were in a band together. Um, and they've been together for over 50 years now. Um, and so I have this really amazing example of what like, like a loyal, committed relationship can be. <laughs> throughout a very long time. Um, and that like stability was really like wonderful in my life growing up. Um, but they're like such a rarity, right? <laughs> um, and I think a part of like my influence there comes from like just seeing how comfortable they were in their relationship growing up. Um, like I remember going to a New Year's once where it was my parents and a bunch of their friends and everybody was getting up and dancing and like, my dad got up and danced with like one of his friend's wives and another guy like got up and danced with my mom and like we're goofing around and making like sexual innuendos at each other and I was like okay so marriage doesn't have to also be like this trap of like you can't like still have fun and explore other people and although they're definitely a monogamous couple it kind of that was probably my first like foray into okay consensual non-monogamy could potentially be a thing um but I got to college, had my first experience with a woman, fell in love with a woman for the first time. Um, probably the first time I ever really fell in love uh, with any gender. Um, and I remember I went home on my first spring break and leading up to that, my parents had kind of given me the, because uh, I was very interested in LGBTQ rights in high school, was de definitely doing all of that stuff. Um, and my parents saw it. And so I think that they were like a little worried. So they would ask me like, well, as long as you're not gay or anything. And, and they're like, for liberal parents who are hippies, it was surprising to me. Um, but I still kind of thought, oh, they're going to be accepting. Like, it's going to be okay. So as soon as I had my first experience with a woman at college, went home and I was like, uh, ready to tell them, but just kind of looking for the opportunity. And my dad just said the right thing. And he just happened to that time for the first time. He didn't say like, well, as long as you're not gay, he was like, well, as long as you don't like women. And I was like, actually I do. <laughs> so that's how I came out. I didn't really come out as a particular identity. Uh, I was just like, yep, I do. But I also like men and like, you know, it's not really about people's gender. It's just about, you know, whoever I happen to be attracted to, but you should just know that I might bring home like anybody. And it went into a conversation about like, they want them wanting grandchildren and having a misunderstanding about how that works. Cause I'm like, just even if I was straight, there's no, you know, ex there shouldn't be an expectation that I would want grandchildren or want children to give you grandchildren in the first place. Um, Right. And so how old I kind of had to have those conversations with them. Yeah. How old were you when you uh, when you came out to your family? Eighteen. Yeah, it was my first year of college, so a nice solid eighteen. <laughs> wow. But at that point, I had already like even in high school, I was already kind of seeing some some women that were in like other school districts. Like I went on a few dates with women and kind of explored, but I just hadn't like had that experience yet. 
And I like knew that my mom was going to be like, well, how do you know if you like haven't had sex with a woman? And so she actually did exactly that. She asked me that. And I was like, no, actually I did. (laughs) So even though I knew I didn't need that to know who I was, I knew that they would need to hear that confidence in my voice. And so, yeah, I, (laughs) it was a good, good timing all around for, for coming out when, when my dad asked that particular question. That's amazing. I love it. I love it. And, um, and today you identify as what? I don't use any kind of identity labels. Um, I experience my gender and my sexuality as fluid, um, which basically means that I just, I just try to not think about, you know, the gender aspect and just like whoever I happen to be attracted to just stay open to it. And, you know, let the person and who they are, you know, drive whatever my desire, you know, might be on that occasion. So, um, yeah, if I had to put a label on it, because in academia, we like to talk about like queer studies and queer theory, and queer theory is like, kind of like the undoing of uh, normative kinds of things around sexuality. Um, So the word queer itself is kind of about, it's almost like a verb, um, I would use the word queer, um, but less in a noun sense and more in a verb. Like it's an action for me. Like I am queering, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for the people who, the, for the people who don't know what queer means and, you know, what that stands for, can you kind of share that with, with us? Yeah, I mean, I think the word has a lot of different meaning um, and it also has derogatory meaning historically. So uh, the word certainly does not fit and is not useful to a lot of people or even is harmful, you know, when used. So, um, you know, keeping that in mind is always important. But for me, um, the word is like a verb. Um, It's basically resisting normative prescriptions of sexuality. <laughs> but like, it's like saying no to the, the, the stuff that we've been told we have to believe for ourselves growing up. And, or even in, a, even in the LGBTQ community, what is normative, what is it, what is normative to be gay? Um, and resisting yeah. the stereotypes and the things that even other gay people try to ascribe and force each other into. Um, It's kind of like a constant kind of critical lens on what it is you're doing and why. Um, And remaining as authentic and true to yourself and what your actual attractions and desires are at all times. And so, you know, to speak on that, what, um, what is authenticity to you? And how do you think that you you know, make an effort to, to work on that every day, you know, to say something like that. I mean, you said it, it's, it's working on it every day because, you know, we are in a society that tells us that we have to do this, be that, act this way, you know, have self-care this, you know, make sure that you're considering this, uh, present yourself in this way. Um, and I think, for me, it's kind of like a constant uh, questioning of, okay, like what is my actual take on this? Like what is my actual feelings here? And 
Am I saying something because I'm worried about what other people are going to think about it? Or am I saying it because it's actually true to who I am and, and what I feel in that moment? And do you worry about what people think? I think I used to more so than ever before, or ever like than, than right now. And like right now, I feel probably most authentic ever in my life. And it's always been a constant kind of like getting closer and closer to that. Um, what changed? Like what, what, if you're saying that you're, you're feeling that way now more so, what changed? What's different? Um, honestly, getting to be in a job that is so connected to my identity. Um, taking on this, this job in the Pride Center uh, has been a way of bringing together, you know, parts of my career and my education uh, with who I am and my values and, and my, my politics and everything. Um, the bringing together of those things makes it so I don't have to compartmentalize my life in ways that I did before um, or to feel like I had to present myself in a particular way and straight and cisgender spaces. Now it's just an expectation that I am the queer, like I'm the queer on the university. So here I am. Um, and I really try to create that space for my students who show up too, right? And, and encourage them that they can do that in other spaces in their life. Although it's challenging and navigating safety is always like the number one, um, you know, that always comes first, but in places where they can feel brave uh, to be who they are, um, that's what I'm always trying to encourage. And that's, and part of that is being authentic, right? It's about navigating that safety piece and being as authentic as you can at the same time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about your role at FIU. Tell us what you do, um, how did the Pride Center, you know, evolve there? Did you start it, um, you know, and what's the benefit? Like how many students are you impacting on a yearly basis, I'd like to know. Yeah, so um, the Pride Center has a long legacy um, of being a, a combination of different LGBTQ programs and initiatives on campus from like the 1990s um, all the way through 2012 when it was finally established as an official office on the FIU campus. So it was um, the first person to fill the, the position in the office was Dr. Gisela Vega, who is now the director of the University of Miami LGBTQ uh, Center there. Um, but she left the position two years ago and I, I took on um, the position in her stead. So I'm the second person uh, in, the, in the role. Um, what we do at FIU, and this is in the academic and student affairs, uh, division. So we're mainly focused on supporting students and um, providing programming that's going to, you know, develop their skills uh, outside of the classroom and provide them with community spaces and places to network and, you know, explore who they are and experience a bit of that college life uh, that is just so important to their growth and development as just human beings who are going to go out in the world and are already going out in the world and doing amazing things but hopefully bolsters that even more i love it so give me like a day in the life like what is it like when you you know you get up in the morning and you go to you go to school like what's give me a day in the life 
a lot of emails and a lot of Zoom calls lately. <laughs> yeah. So this is a very comfortable environment for me. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of emailing. So we do a lot of programming. So I'll, I'll tell you by example, right now we are, um, we are putting together a Pride Leaders program. So this program is going to be uh, designed for about 12 students to uh, really focus inward and outward um, on themselves as, as leaders, um, as individuals who are LGBTQ, but who are also motivated to have an impact on their community, um, but be it at FIU or beyond FIU, um, you know, in local government, in national government around the world, uh, you know, whatever they're passionate about, but we're focusing on giving them workshops and tools in order to do that. So a lot of what I do is building connections with people who can provide some of these resources and present to the students who can who can come together on like a panel and discuss different topics with the students to you know help build that skill set um, and build that you know that networking kind of community with the students. Um, and so I I'm designing this like five day program that involves them sleeping over on campus. So it's a lot of collaborating with other offices. Um, to make sure that everything is set up for them when they come, um, designing the schedule and like what the whole program is going to look like day in, day out, um, putting together the materials and resources, making sure that they have access to, to food while they're on campus, so catering, um, so like kind of event planning in a way. Um, but then, you know, other stuff that I do outside of that is like writing grants, um, uh, educating faculty and staff on campus around LGBTQ issues. One of my favorite things to do because I got a chance to like really advocate for my students uh, with people who wouldn't typically get exposure to our community or the things that are important to our community. Um, and uh, I run a safe zone uh, training program um, for faculty and staff. We do student trainings. We have programs that are set up um, specifically to support our, our students uh, who are um, seeking leadership positions in student organizations. So we do a lot of advisement for students. Students will drop in with concerns from, you know, their family is kicking them out of the house because they're queer to, you know, they're crying about their biology exam. Like, we, you know, we support them in every way possible. I love that. I love that. That's so beautiful. That's so beautiful. Um, that's, that's really neat. Tell me about, you know, has, has a student ever really uh, affected you in some way that, you know, when you went home, you couldn't stop thinking about it. And it not only did you help them, but they helped you. Ugh, all the time, <laughs> like, like every day. Yeah. Can you give me a, an example? I mean, this is, this is why I said at the beginning that like, you know, I'm, I'm a person that really values growth and, you know, just being open to new things. And, you know, I'm, I'm almost 34 years old. And at some point, I'm really going to age out of the Gen Z population <laughs> and whatever the next generation population comes through. But, you know, they, they certainly teach me things every day. Um, you know, I did my dissertation on uh, cisgenderism. Uh, and misgendering people and using like their incorrect pronouns and that kind of thing. Um, but I, you know, I make mistakes about pronouns all the time and my students 
correct me on that all the time. And like, I literally studied it and advocate for it all the time. And it's, you know, a kind of a part of the lesson around how important pronouns are to really practice and get them right. Um, so, you know, that's one. Uh, we have all types of people in the LGBTQ community. Um, we have people with disabilities, we have people of color, we have immigrants, we have, we have straight people, trans people, are, some of them identify as straight, right? So um, we literally have every type of human in our community. And I certainly don't know everything there is to know about every person in our community and every identity and every experience. So, you know, I am an able-bodied person and, you know, ableism is something that is like very real. Um, and I contend with that sometimes with my students who are neurodivergent um, or have learning disabilities. And, you know, really thinking through, well, how do I support a student, you know, with a learning disability, um, but also provide them with the same, uh, you know, kind of educational experience or leadership skills or those kinds of things um, in a way that, you know, is going to be accessible for them, um, while also being able to support our able-bodied students who, you know, learn at a higher level. Um, that's always a challenge. Um, and it's something that I have to, you know, constantly kind of contend with, especially in an, you know, in a, in a institution of higher ed where there's already this like bar set of where you're like supposed to be in your education or your, your ability to succeed at the college level. Um, and it really like it, it's hard because I'm in this space in this institution that promotes this very ableist kind of elitist idea. And I have to try to be inclusive and make space for, you know, students who struggle uh, within the context of that institutionalized way of thinking. Wow. That's a big responsibility. I mean, like, this is, <laughs> people like, I think, you know, once you're in a role like this, you realize how much goes into it. And I come home thinking about this stuff every day. So, <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's always something to live and breathe it. Yeah. And I love it. Like, it's so interesting and it's constantly challenging me and, and getting me to grow. You know, I can't sit, I cannot sit on my hands in this role. There's no way to, if you do, you're doing, doing injustice to somebody. And, and honestly, you're always doing an injustice to somebody in, in anything you're doing. Um, but the recognition of that is really important. And the, the constant trying to do right by people is, is what I do every day. <laughs> That's awesome. Go you, you know, I mean, that takes effort and, uh, and discipline, you know, um, I think it's important to, I don't always do it. I'm working on it every day, but I think it's important to show up, especially when you don't want to show up, you know, to, to be accountable, to be reliable. It helps people, uh, trust you and believe in you. And then it, I think it allows them to kind of uh, believe in themselves at the same time because they look at you as an example. So thank you for being an example. I appreciate that. That's huge. You know, the, the position has a role model kind of responsibility attached to it. So yes. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what you're passionate about in addition to, you know, giving, you know, doing, doing your job on a daily. 
Um, I'm really passionate about travel, which has been really challenging in the last year. <laughs> Um, I have, as you mentioned, I have my, my travel blog. Um, I started that, uh, oh my God, it's like seven, eight, almost eight years ago now, I think. Um, but I, I, I was in the middle of grad school. I was super stressed out. I was like, do I want to be doing this like ivory tower thing for the rest of my life? What am I doing? Um, and I started looking at, uh, ways to budget travel and to do it in a way that was financially possible for me because I wasn't making a lot of money as a grad student at that time. Um, so yeah, I focused on uh, earning a lot of frequent flyer miles <laughs> um, and using some travel hacks to make that happen. And I earned like um, half a million uh, frequent flyer miles in 18 months. Um, and then I defended my dissertation and then I took off to Iceland on a one-way ticket <laughs> and I didn't come back for a year and a half. Um, and that was really, really fun. And I now kind of try to keep travel as a regular part of my life, even if it's like just the value of travel, which is exploring um, a new place and, you know, just kind of trying to learn about uh, a culture and or like a new area. And so I've been doing that a little bit during COVID, just going around Florida because I'm pretty new here. So getting to know Florida has been in a way like a travel experience for me. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. That's really, that's really cool. What would you say, since you're pretty, you know, new to Florida, what would you say is your favorite thing about Florida or Miami? Well, I am scuba certified, so having access to the ocean and really beautiful uh, reefs is just awesome. Um, I would say that the, the like the most the tippy tap thing is probably all the springs here. Like that was something I discovered just earlier this year. I did not realize how many amazing like crystal clear. Um, you know, freshwater springs there are and that you can dive them like what? <laughs> so I went diving my first uh, spring at Devil's Den back in February and it was really, really cool. So that's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, I want to know um, before we wrap up, what tell me something that, you know, what motivates you to like get up every day in addition to having to, you know, pay your bills and uh you know, help the kids that you impact, like what, what motivates you? I think what motivates me is like recognizing a lot of my privilege and wanting to make the voices that are less heard and less seen in our society, um, heard, right? And seen, <laughs> making the ones who are less heard and seen, making them heard and seen, but also like giving them space to be able to exist freely um, in who they are. Uh, that and relationships. Um, I'm really motivated by the, the people who are in my life um, and making them proud, but also making myself proud by vicariously through that. Um, and just really Really like fostering those relationships. Like I want the people, the people who I know and are connected to me to feel loved and supported. And, you know, I want them to walk away from a conversation with me, really seeing their self-worth and knowing their self-worth. Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, talk, let's talk a little bit about relationships. 
<laughs> what um what would you say it takes to to make a relationship work in any sort of relationship from experience what would you say um vulnerability um security in yourself and who you are um honesty <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's a typical one that people say, but, you know, I, I mean it in the sense of, you know, even the things that we're, we're told we're not really supposed to think or feel. And so we don't admit those things to our partner, like often happens a lot of time in monogamous relationships where we don't admit that, oh yeah, like we actually do have attraction to that person and that's okay, right? Um, it's about what you do with that attraction uh, and how you communicate about it that's important. Um, but yeah, communication, I mean, that's, that's the key part of honesty and vulnerability. You have to be able to communicate those things and regularly communicate about them to be able to do it well. So yeah, loyalty, loyalty is another good one. <laughs> yeah, loyalty. Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a big person about that. Like if, you know, the mutual bond is really important. And I think that's what kind of like fosters the loyalty. So that mutual thing really has to be there. And I'm really about like the balance in a relationship and having, you know, it's, there's gonna be things that are imbalanced at different times, of course, but the groundwork I think needs to be mutual. Yes, definitely, definitely. Um, I'm sorry, give me one second. I'm gonna cut this out, but I think my music's playing in the background. This <laughs> it can't play, I don't know. Okay, you can just re-record all of your parts. <laughs> oh man, what a bummer for later. Um, but this is yeah, this is kick ass. Um, would you say that it's a fun time to be alive? Uh, yeah. Um, it's funny that that you ask this actually because um, this week is is the, well, I guess it's it's this Saturday, is the fifth anniversary of the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando. Um, and we are, we're organizing a, a vigil for this Friday on campus. So I've been thinking about my, my remarks and I was just thinking, you know, today about how, how often it is. And I think this is like across communities and just like human beings, we tend to like, once we learn about the death of a person, we start honoring like who they were, but after they've already died. Um, and that's like sad, like we, and you know, one of the things that I really try to do in these vigils, and, and we tend to have two a year in our office, we do one for the Transgender Day of Remembrance and Resilience to honor uh, trans people who are violently often murdered throughout the year. And usually uh, trans women of color are the main ones. So we do two vigils a year and I'm, I'm always like, we need to not just talk about their death, but like who they were as individuals. Um, but we do so much of this when people are dead and not when they're alive. Um, and so I'm sorry, I kind of took it to a dark place. Um, it's oh, kind it's of like, true. It's a sad kind of reality, right? Of being part of a minoritized and marginalized community is that, you know, a lot of people just are underappreciated and less seen. And then we only really hear about them in death. Um, 
So I'm an atheist and um, I very much believe that we are all really, really lucky to be here. Um, and so for me, is it a fun time to be alive? Yes, every day it's an amazing opportunity and like, we are so lucky. This is like an accident <laughs> that all of this happened for me. So it makes me feel so um, excited and appreciative that I'm here on a level that like, I don't know that I would be able, to, if I was a religious person, I don't know that I would be able to appreciate it without feeling that kind of like, whoa, <laughs> how are we here? Um, yeah, so yes, I think it's a, it's a great time to be alive because we're lucky. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, it, it, it's, it's a fucking great time to be alive. Um, so I heard that you had a stalker. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, I always used to say, um, I've had a, a, a few public figures as clients and they've told me that they've had stalkers. And I was always like, wow, if I had a stalker, I'd find that to be the biggest fucking compliment ever. You know, like, I think that would be a huge compliment because somebody's like, you're, you're that obsessed with me. And then that into me, like, um, I guess it's something I've always dreamt of in, in a sense, in a relationship, in, let me clarify, in a relationship sense, you know, and that's probably why I said it at that time. But um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, mine was definitely not a compliment. <laughs> so uh, mine was a cyber stalker. So a little bit different than your kind of run of the mill. Uh, what a cop said to me during this thing was, oh, it's probably just a, you know, angry ex-boyfriend. And I was like, assumptions, assumptions, assumptions. But also, no, this is <laughs> not that. Um, I was calling this person they, them, because I was like, it could be a female, I don't know. Um, but uh, it was a cyber stalker. So I actually didn't know who it was for um, about a year and a half. Uh, started with text messages, um, then emails of this person posing as a student of mine. I had just started teaching. It was the first time in grad school I started teaching. Um, and it went to basically threats um, against my life. Um, the person told me that they knew they had my parents address and wrote to me saying, oh, I'm on you know, this street and tell me where I'm going, <laughs> like really trying to make me worried, right? Um, and it did, it made me worried. And, uh, you know, I got victim blamed, um, told that I was too public on the internet. I mean, I was like the normal person with like a, fa a Facebook profile <laughs> um, and that was private by the way. Uh, but, you know, uh, yeah, I was a pretty like, active person online in general with different screenings and stuff and this person managed to find everything and connect it to who I was and so I was victim blamed and said well you should you know just get yourself off the internet then just go offline and this person will go away and I listened you know because I felt I, I felt guilty I felt like it was my fault that it was happening um so I got completely offline and not at not at a good time in my career because it was my last couple of years of grad school when you're really supposed to be putting yourself out there, job applications, being like a visible researcher, publishing, all of that. And 
I got really scared. I mean, I was walking down the, walking down the street. I was running home from the subway in New York City to my house, you know, a 10, 10 minute walk away because I literally didn't know if this person was my, you know, six foot, 400 pound next door neighbor, you know, who was going to come barging into my apartment one, one day, you know, when I was just sitting there, um, you know, or if this was something more innocent than that, I had no idea. But when I got offline, you know, the person was threatening my, my friends um, saying, you know, trying to get to me through my friends who are still online. And when it escalated to that, when it like started to impact my friends and family, that's when I got, you know, really motivated to find out who it was. Um, long story short is uh, the police, detectives, nobody really helped me. Um, I ended up like getting kind of like equally as obsessed as this person who was sending me like a barrage of messages through my, what I, the only source that I kept open, which was my messages on Facebook. Um, but like a barrage of messages all day long from this person. Um, you know, homophobic remarks, racist remarks. Um, you know, I have a Jewish last name, so a lot of anti-Semitism, all kinds of things. And eventually um, they slipped up and they said something about a class that they were taking at the college where I was working. And I didn't know if this was BS or not, but I just looked into it and I was able to um, find out who it was. And it was in fact a student. So ironic that I still work in academia, but it's a part of my healing too, to be here and to also be as out and open as I am at this stage in my life. Um, the travel was a big part of that for me. It was a big part of the healing for me. Um, so yeah, what I learned was that the criminal justice system sucks. Uh, this person had some serious mental health stuff going on. They did end up getting arrested and really sadly in the last week when kind of things were kind of coming to a head and I had finally identified who the person was, um, we felt like I, I was still looking at all of their messages and they were sending me angry messages about the college and to the point that they actually made a threat to shoot up the college. And wow. at that time there was a shooting at a college down here in Florida. Um, it was literally like the week before and I was like all of these like shootings and things like Virginia Tech and like everything that had happened I was like I can't like ignore this if I ignore this and something happens then I'm at fault for you know a bunch of people dying I have to say something and like I knew they were already going to arrest her um but I was like you might want to look into this too I don't know how serious it is but I think you should know um you know she just threatened you know to shoot up the college um, and so she got a felony charge because of that. Um, but I advocated for her to go through mental health court because I recognized that she had, you know, a lot of things to deal with and our criminal justice system does not really support people's mental health. It just kind of makes it worse in a lot of ways. Um, but I didn't want her to do this to anybody else. So I still felt justified, you know, to have her go have some consequences for her actions. Um, but yeah, I had a restraining order for many, many years. Um, and what I learned about her is that she was actually deaf um, and a selective mute. And the computer was like her one way of communicating with people. Um, it's quite possible she'll even watch this because I know that she does still kind of tune into some of my stuff every now and then. And that's fine. I know that she's kind of harmless. 
um, but definitely did not seem that way. And I, and I was very scared. It was a traumatic experience for me. So um, I definitely had to, to heal from that. And this, you know, kind of whole experience of travel and then, you know, getting this job down here and, and being more of a, an out and public person, having my blog, like all of that has been kind of a, a part of the healing process for me. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. It's a wow. long story, but that's the short version. No, I, it, it was great. It was great. Um, tell me a little bit about the healing process. I mean, you, you've used travel. What other, you know, tools have you utilized or brought into your life to help you heal as, you know, an individual? From trauma, from trauma at the end of the day, that was, that was trauma. Even It was, you know, I, I feel, and I'm sorry to, you know, kind of cut off before I let you speak, but yeah. we're so used to being on our cell phone that, you know, the bullying is there, you know, unfortunately, whether it, it comes in, you know, messages by people, you know, or by people you don't know. And um, I think it's important to address that, you know, so Tell me a little bit about how you were able to heal from that, because I'm sure a lot of people struggle with that on a day-to-day -day basis. They just don't yeah. know how to talk about it and even worse, not how to heal from it. Well, a really important point um, uh, of content to this is that uh, the student I didn't even really know. Um, so I, I taught a 600 person introduction to psychology class that she was one student in. And so I proctored exams as a, it was, I was just a teacher assistant actually. I didn't even teach the full class. Um, so she only came into the class to take the exams and probably only inter interacted with me like, uh, thanks for your exam, you know, like that was probably it. Um, so that's really important to note because one of the points of my healing was recognizing that this was a completely random thing. Like it wasn't, there was nothing in particular about me as to, to why it happened. Um, it wasn't my fault, right? And recognizing that, and I think recognizing that this really, it could happen to anybody who's public online uh, in any way, right? Or just a, a person <laughs> existing in, in the world. It can literally happen to anybody um, and there's no rhyme or reason. And I think in talking about it with other people, I realized that, so many other people have a, a stalker story, whether it was a cyber stalker or it was an ex-boyfriend. There's so many people who do, and it's not the victim's fault. It is, it is a, a, a sad reality of, of mental health issues in our country. Um, and we should be able to exist in public ways online and celebrities, you know, should be able to be themselves out in the world as celebrities and also, you know, not have to deal with the, stalk the stalking aspect um, that they deal with and the obsessions that happen. Um, I got to experience, I guess, a little bit of that without having signed up to be a celebrity. <laughs> I guess I experienced a little bit of that, but like, you know, that was a, a really important part of my healing was recognizing that. Um, therapy, right? <laughs> I didn't do a lot of therapy initially, but I did a little bit of processing of it after I came back from traveling through therapy. It was kind of like the last like release of it came out in therapy, but um, the travel was really important because it forced me to be out in the world. Um, 
I'm a naturally trusting person, uh, you know, like I trust you right up here, like right, right away. And then that can just only go down. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then you have to work really like hard to get it back up. So building that back up, you know, that natural part of me um, and trusting that again and really trusting my gut again and, and being in the world is really, really important. Um, and, and then being back in academia, so I kind of left academia by way of going and traveling and not starting my career in academia right after I got my PhD. That's kind of what we're supposed to do as PhDs is like go right into like a postdoctoral program and, you know, keep going. But I was like, yeah, nah, like I need to take a break. Um, and coming back and coming back into academia and being in a role where I'm interacting with students again and supporting them and seeing that like, they can appreciate me without getting like <laughs> obsessive with me, but also that like, you know, that may happen again. And now I, I feel like I'm more prepared for it. Wow. What a story. What a story. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, so before we end, I'd like to ask you, uh, what is the legacy that you'd like to leave behind? Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, you, you told me this this one last night when we talked, and I was like, "That's that's a really good one." Um, I, I'm gonna go back to what I, something I said before, which is uh, relationships, and just I want people to walk away from like any interaction with me, just just you know, knowing their self worth. Um, I think that that extends to you know to everything that I do. Um, whether it be, you know, in my career and interacting with students to, um, you know, the LGBTQ community and supporting in the various ways that I do that way um, to my relationships with just the people that are close to me. So, yeah, I want, I want to increase people's self-worth, <laughs> make people know their self-worth <laughs> in whatever way that I can. Is there anything that you do particular that that makes you feel like you can help someone with their self-worth? I'm that friend that like when, when someone comes to me with like a, a story about, you know, someone that they're dating or something, for example, um, and that person, like I, and I see in people like their potential and their worth, and they might not see it in themselves, but if they come to me and they're like, you know, this person is ignoring my texts and is being flaky. And then I'm like, yo, <laughs> like go and plan the rest of your day. Like screw that person. Like I'm going to be that friend who tells you like, no, like if you need that person to motivate you to put yourself first, like I'm always going to be that person. Wow. I love that. That is beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on LesPod. Um, it's been a really fun experience getting to know you and being able to, you know, share your stories and experiences with the audience that we've got, you know, our community, I, I feel like, uh, we need more stories like this to help other people feel seen and heard because they're not doing it themselves yet. So maybe this will inspire them to do things outside of their comfort zone, because I think it's important that we share our story. It's more selfish than selfless to keep it in because what we've gone through our traumas, our, you know, 
our mistakes, you know, people can relate to that if we share those with them and maybe not feel so alone and it might impact them enough to want to change and give back in the same way that we're, we're doing, you know? So thank you yeah. so much for being on the show and giving back by sharing your story. Yes, that's why I accepted being on the podcast. So thank you so much for having this really great mission. Uh, It's awesome. And I I wish you all the luck in your future growth of this podcast. It's going to be great. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.